This is the Gospel according to John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early, while it was yet dark, to the tomb and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. She ran, therefore, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. And they ran both together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came first to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not enter in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him, and entered into the tomb, and he beheld the linen clothes lying there, and the napkin that was laid upon his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also, who had come first to the tomb, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise up from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why do you weep? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had thus said this, she turned herself back and beheld Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why do you weep? Whom do you seek? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have borne him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Easter Sunday with Good Shepherd New York. My name is Michael Redzina, and I'm the pastor of Good Shepherd, and it's so good to experience this with you. Uh, you'll notice that I'm in my living room and not in the beautiful chapel to Good Shepherd, and that is because uh, we are under sort of quarantine, and the rules have gotten more strict uh, from when we filmed our previous gatherings. And so the beauty of today is that we have contributors from all over the country, really all over the world, as David mentioned. And so it's cool to be able to uh, experience our connections, even though we're isolated in our homes. So happy Easter. And I want to invite you into a practice where we uh, experience the sort of call and response that's been traditional to the church uh, over the course of its history. And that is someone says, he is risen, and everyone responds, he's risen indeed. And so would you join me in that? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, I couldn't hear you, but I imagine your beautiful voices sounding all across the city and all across the country. Um, it's so uh, wonderful to be with you and to experience this, this sacred day together. And before we do uh, a reflection on our text, uh, which is what I'm about to offer, I'd like to invite us into a moment of showing up, of paying attention, of sort of dialing in. Uh, and that's what makes these moments sacred. If we just 
sort of show up casually and take it in. It goes in one ear and out the other. Um, and it doesn't alter us. It's not something that is transformative. So we invite you into that right now. And whatever you bring into this moment, could be lots of faith, could be lots of doubt. Uh, we just invite you to bring your full self to this moment, just a quiet moment to open our hearts to the possibility that God would connect this story to our story in a very meaningful way. So just a moment of quiet. Would you join me in that? God, we pray that you would guide us this morning, this Easter morning, into an encounter with uh, your love and your voice and a sense of your story ringing true and altering the way we imagine our world and our own lives. And we pray that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as we begin, I'd like to ask a question that I think we're all carrying with us at some level. And it was prompted to me as someone sent me an image. It was like concentric circles of the processes that we can go through in the midst of COVID-19. And at the very center of those concentric circles was a question, who are we becoming during COVID-19? Not what are we doing or, you know, how are we staying busy, but who are we becoming? And that's an Easter question. It's a question I think our story shines quite a bit of light on. Now, our Easter story begins in the dark. It's early. The morning dew is thick. The song of the birds is stretching out through the air. And Mary has come to check on her friend, the body of her friend, who was publicly executed a couple of days earlier. But in a sudden turn of the story, Mary is rattled to her core by a startling experience. A loss added to a loss. She encounters an empty tomb. And what does she do when she encounters this troubling empty tomb? She runs. Now, psychologists teach us that there are three common responses to fear. We fight, flight, or freeze. Now, Mary could be said to experience flight here. She uh, is running with troubled news on her lips, back to her friends to share that news. Now, verse 2 is really important because she approaches Peter and John, her friends, who are also friends of Jesus, and Mary begins to tell her story through two phrases. And I want to draw your attention to these phrases because I think they're very meaningful for the moment we're in now. One phrase is, they have taken, and the other phrase is, we don't know. They have taken, and we don't know. These phrases clue us in that Mary's story is one of loss and it's one of confusion. Mary has had something stolen away from her, and it seems that this unexpected theft has catapulted her into this state of confusion. She says to the friends of, of Jesus, the other friends of Jesus, we don't know. And I think that language which Mary brings to light here on her experience could easily be the language of our moment. We live now in a moment of collective loss, and we find ourselves in this fear zone. If the question is at the center, the fear is the next rung out. And many of us, like Mary, are experiencing it directly, and it came just as suddenly and just as unexpected. 
I've heard from you. I've heard many of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have had contracts canceled. Some of you didn't meet your quota and you weren't paid for the month. Others of you have had to race loved ones to the hospital or you've discovered that someone you do love and care about is in the hospital alone. Some of you have already lost someone that you love. Now, all of us are quarantined at some point here in New York, and we're stuck either in isolation on the one hand, where we're lonely, perhaps we're fidgety, and we have a sense of spiraling, and some of you are suffocating with roommates or your family, you're all on top of each other and experiencing each other with much higher volumes, right, than you're used to. And learning what it means to balance work and, if you're parents, this new role of teacher. And on top of that, everything else that you carry as a responsibility. Now, we're also learning that the poorest among us are those that often are hit the hardest. Um, the New Yorker just put out a piece that shows why this is the case. That in uh, the poorest communities of New York... The, the, the facts are that information is just not there uh, of how they can get help and where they can get help. Um, not only is information not there, but the resources aren't there to be able to gather that information and pass that on and to take the necessary measures. There's an a, a, a economic limitation there as well. And on top of that, there's this sense in which um, they're isolated just like the rest of us, only it hurts harder and deeper. Now, we're all watching time sort of bleed away in this moment. Um, the days are sort of like dissolving into each other. There's no longer Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. It just seems like one long day, like a giant blob that has no shape because it has no container or structure. And this is the fear zone. And what do we do when we're in this space? Well, we hoard. You know, we grab food or medicine or toilet paper that we don't really need. I love what Andrew Yang said when he said, you know, in theory, we all should be using the same amount of toilet paper in this crisis. We spread emotions that are, you know, connected to fear or anger, and we do it more rapidly. We complain frequently. We forward every scary message that we receive or news clip, or we forward on every sort of survival humor piece uh, that's imaginable. But in this moment, our nerves are raw and we are easily angered. At least I know I am, and I know I'm not alone. And now coming back to our story in verse 3, we see Peter and John, the people who heard this news of loss, we see them uh, running, just what Mary did. They do exactly what Mary did. And there's this kind of haste to our lives when we're confronted with loss or the news of the threat of loss. Peter and John ran they run to the tomb, and they want to see for themselves what they've heard from Mary. Now, when they get there, there's no commentary at all about what they're thinking or what they're feeling. We have no sense of their inner monologue or how they're processing the moment, uh, but the writer is uh, giving us one little phrase about John, and that is, he saw and he believed. But the writer is so careful, lest we make John into some hero, uh, to tell us that it wasn't because he had this profound insight into the moment. Uh, he still didn't understand. His faith wasn't a profound understanding. It was simply a resigned consent to terrible news. And with this text, uh, we are told 
that they went back to where they came from. They went back to where they were. That's what the text literally says. They come, they experience this loss and this confusion for themselves, and then they go back to where they were. Now that is the human instinct. When we are confronted with loss and when we're confronted with grief, there is a sense, a longing within us that wells up to go back to where we were before, to go back to normal when things were in their right place, or at least we had a sense of control and could manage our reality. In moments like that, we want nothing more to go back to where we were before. And I think there's some profound psychological insight here. The burning question of the moment is, when will we return to a new sense of normal? We want to go back to where we were, just like Peter and John. And Peter and John bypass their loss. They, they bypass that sense of confusion, and they simply seek to return. Now, when humans are afraid, we fly away, we might fight, or we freeze. And perhaps Peter and John immediately fought this news. You know, they rebelled against what they heard from Mary, so they went to go check it out for themselves. But once they found that, that what Mary had told them was indeed true— they flew. They left. They went back uh, and walked away from their place of pain and loss. Now, I wonder in this moment if we're not doing the same thing. And I think it's an important question to consider on Easter Sunday. How are we experiencing the pain and the loss of this moment? How are we responding? Some of the loss that we see around us or that we experience is more acute than others, but the truth is pain is pain. And our worlds, like Peter and John's, are being shaken. But we don't want to sit with our pain. We want to avoid it or numb. I know a lot of us right now are getting busy to fill the time or to sort of like get the release from the pressure or the tension of being cramped in on each other. So we're exercising like never before. I've seen the meme where it says life as normal and everybody's on their phone or with their device and then life in the time of the virus and everybody's out walking, doing something physical because we're exercising, we're staying busy, we're binging Tiger King or we have this looming pressure to produce the equivalent of King Lear for our moment. We go where we've always gone in the midst of stress. We go to the place we know. And for us in this city especially, it's productivity. Like Peter and John, we go back from where we came. But here's the warning. We miss the possibility of transformation when we do this. This, I believe, is a moment of choice. Um, in New York, you know, we have the, the sense that maybe we're at the plateau of this virus, which means that we're not quite halfway through the first wave of this. And so what that means for us is that we have time. We have time to pause and to consider and to take stock and to actually mine this moment for the gems that are, that are possible, that are, exist under the surface of our lives. And I think it's important for us not to waste this moment. Our story zooms past Peter and John and their responses, because frankly, their responses aren't where the story is. There's no sign of hope. There's no signal of transformation with either of these guys. No, the narrative sideswipes Peter and John, and zooms in on Mary. Now, what do we find with Mary? What does the narrator want to uh, see, want us to see, as we rush past Peter and John's familiar responses? Now, in verse 11, we see what the narrator wants us to see. 
The text says, quote, as she wept, she saw. As she wept, she saw. Now, Mary is portrayed here as beginning to see. She lingers. She doesn't run. She's done that before, but now she's not going to do that again. Here, she begins to explore and to observe and to slow down and to pay attention. Now, we often want to rush to resurrection. We want to rush to victory or to change. But this Easter story reveals a life-changing mystery that you can't get to resurrection unless you're willing to linger around the tomb. And so Mary is seen peeking timidly into the tomb, and our story has her seeing two angels. Now, I love this moment because notice what the angels are doing. They're sitting. Now, I might be wrong, but in my cursory glance of the scriptures and the story of what the, what the Bible teaches about angels, we don't hardly ever see them sitting. They're always flying or uh, looming large and producing fear. But here they're simply sitting. And Mary is seen as she peeks timidly into this tomb, beholding the angels. And this empty tomb, this apparent source of loss, has had a singular response up to this moment. Mary saw it and she ran. Peter and John saw it and they went back to where they were. And finally, they, uh, Mary is here once again, lingering. But what do the angels do? They sit. Angels in the Bible are sent ones. They are, the word, the word literally means messenger. And angels are portrayed as attending to the things that God cares deeply about in the world. And here, I want you to watch how the angels function in the story. They attend to Mary's pain. They see it. They name it. And they encourage her to a different posture than her initial frightened reaction of running or of James and John's return to normal. No. Angels attend to what God cares about. And so they provoke Mary to a holy curiosity. We need that angelic presence now. We need that non-anxious presence in the face of our pain. We need a holy curiosity that can mine this moment for meaning, and that can get to the bottom of our lives. And it's only possible when we move out of the fear zone, expanding, so to speak, into a place of learning. And that's what the angels prompt Mary toward, a learning space, a learning zone. Now notice what begins this learning journey for Mary. It's the prompt from the angels, the question, why are you crying? And this sends Mary on a journey of holy curiosity. And really, it's an acknowledgement. We need to acknowledge our losses. And I know it's a little cheesy, but if your tears could tell a story or if your tears could speak, what would they say? They ask the most important question of Mary in this moment. They ask, why are you crying? And Mary's response, perhaps by instinct, is where most of us go. She goes back to where she was at the beginning of the story. It's sort of her narrative loop, and it's a closed loop. She's stuck. And we see her in the presence of these non-anxious messengers, attending to her pain. And her initial reaction is simply just to double down on the story that she's been telling herself about her loss. Mary's beginning to see, she's lingering, she is entertaining important questions, and that's all really good. But this is not a sudden sight for Mary. 
Mary is beginning to see, and it's a seeing in stages. Now, another character enters the scene here. It's a character that we're told is Jesus, but Mary, who deeply knows Jesus, doesn't recognize him. And it's an interesting trend we see in all the resurrection stories. This stranger, who she takes for the gardener, asks her a familiar question. Once again, why are you crying? And this, once again, prompts her to a holy curiosity. And I think this is a signal to us that holy curiosity requires persistence. It's not the kind of thing that we can just take one little moment to reflect on and then go back to our lives as normal. No, there is a a wrestling, there is a, a process, there is time spent and space given to dwell with questions that matter. And so Mary is asked once again by Jesus, why are you crying? Now, we could be harsh on Mary here, but I think she does what most of us do. She goes back to her original story. Again, it's a story of loss. It's a story of confusion. Only she adds to it an action plan this time. She essentially says, uh, listen, if you did this, if you took this body away, just tell me and I'll fix it. I'll clean it up. What we see Mary doing here is bargaining. She's, She's negotiating with reality. It's one of the stages of grief, and we all go through it in the face of loss. But then there's something that happens here in the story that stops her cold in her tracks. That strange voice, the voice that she couldn't quite place, comes to her. It's the voice that up until now has been muffled by the filter of her pain. It was kept at bay by the stories that she was telling herself about her pain. It's that persistent voice which finally reaches her at her core. And we hear it in verse 17. Imagine Jesus looking into your eyes or into her eyes and saying, Mary. What would that feel like? What does it feel like when someone sees you and knows you and acknowledges you? Now, this moment is mysterious, like most personal breakthroughs are. There is this dawning of intimacy in Mary's heart. She is seen, and therefore she sees everything differently. It changes everything about her life and her perception. Now, I've been in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, engaging in group therapy because it's just stressful and I figured I need to practice what I'm preaching. And so I jumped into a group therapy uh, situation. And uh, the first week that we met, um, I had kind of a a breakthrough. I had a a, a connection, a fresh connection with how I was feeling and how I was doing. And it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have someone with that sort of angelic posture who could sit with the pain and provoke holy curiosity. I was telling uh, the group how I was doing And I began to get choked up. And as I was choked up, uh, I was, you know, do what we all do in in a social setting when we get choked up. I tried to pull myself together. I mean, in essence, I tried to do what James, I mean, what John and Peter did, just try to go back to where I was before. But thankfully, I had a wise and caring guide who was attending to the moment and provoking me to holy curiosity. And before I could move on with anything else, uh, they simply said, hey, can we stop here? And I notice what's happening right now. I can see your face. And 
would you be able to put words to what you're feeling right now? Could, could you describe what's going on in you? And through a series of, you know, uh, questions and uh, just simply being present with that feeling, it was a transformative moment for me. And I, like Mary, felt like I was beginning to see something new. Now, Mary has this wonderful reaction when she uh, finally recognizes Jesus. She clings to him. She hugs him. And the thing that's interesting about Jesus' response is that it's, it's actually very fitting for the coronavirus moment. He simply says to her, uh, don't touch me. <laughs> and after he says that, he goes to something a little more important. He says, I am ascending. In other words, Jesus is rising up in this moment. He's moving through his pain, through his loss, through the crucifixion, beyond. He's not there yet, but he's on his way. He's moving beyond the place of his suffering and death, beyond the place of his betrayals. And this is dynamic. It's not static. Jesus is in motion here. He's not standing still. And he tells Mary, don't hold on in this painful moment, but let go and move through. Don't cling, but transcend. And he tells Mary to go tell them that he is ascending. Now, before we get caught up in sort of the glory of all that or the the hoopla of that, I want us to realize like we see this through Easter eyes. We know what happens to Jesus on the other side. We know the story of the disciples in the aftermath, Um, but we've got to see this through their eyes. They were not ascending by any means, none of them. They were spiraling. And Jesus wasn't just spiraling. He had definitively spiraled at his death. But here, Jesus reframes and helps Mary see and understand through a personal encounter and through divine intimacy that the world has been cracked open. In the words of Mark Nepo, quote, all the buried seeds crack open in the dark the instant they surrender to a process they can't see, end quote. Even in this moment of insight, Mary still wants to grasp. She wants to grab control. And Jesus simply says, stop clinging. Now, in the time of the coronavirus, we're all clinging to something. And Jesus comes to us with an Easter message, a message that if we can embrace, will produce an Easter miracle. Jesus says, stop clinging. Let go. Take the risk of vulnerability. Take the the risk of letting go of all your management and control systems and simply be in where you are. Jesus says, stop clinging. And what does Mary experience here? A profound movement. And what if during COVID-19, we could stop offering our action plans and we could begin asking the question, who do we want to become now? How could we move from that fear zone to a place of learning and eventually to a place of growth. And we'll see in Mary and the other disciples this beautiful growth trajectory where they're able to to get beyond the sort of like walls and, and locked doors of fear and out to love and to spend themselves in love for the other. Jesus tells her, go attend to the others as I've attended to you. And I think right now as a community, This is a beautiful invitation for Easter. We need to attend to what what God cares about most in our own souls. We need to take stock and ask ourselves, what are we living our lives for? 
And what counts when this is all said and done? Our lives are fragile and they are short and we are extraordinarily vulnerable. And so we need to connect to that love which is at the center of the universe to get our meaning, to get our ballast. And like Jesus and Mary after him, to find our meaning. What if we could roll away the stone? And rather than run, what if we could linger a while until we hear that loving voice at the center of the universe calling our name and healing our pain? Amen.